Plato wrote a number of dialogues that were supposedly between Socrates, his teacher, and other men of Athens. And in one of those dialogues, Socrates is asked the question, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone else? How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone else? That was a question that the Greeks might have had. It's a question that people have today. We are those who live in a time where we believe that God has given us the right to pursue happiness and that in order to pursue happiness, we have to have liberty. We have to be free to be able to serve our own desires and not serve others. Well, as we find in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the truth is that the only way for a man to be happy is to serve someone else. Open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Now, we haven't gotten this far in the gospel yet. We're actually still at the end of Mark chapter 9. But Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, which we'll be looking at here in the time that we have this morning, is really well summarized by what the Lord Jesus Christ says ends up being kind of the, the key verse for this whole section of Mark's gospel, which began in chapter 8 when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And we'll continue up through chapters 9, 10, these three chapters here. Look at chapter 10, verse 45. It says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve. And so he sets out the example for what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means that we are, like him, called to a life of service to others. And that this life of service to others is the only true pathway to joy. The disciples had a public failure last week, back in Mark chapter 9. They had failed to cast out a spirit that was causing seizures in a boy. And they had failed because they were lacking in faith, which was evidenced by their lack of prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ succeeded in doing what the disciples could not because he was a man of faith and he was a man of prayer. Well, this week we're going to see two more failures by the disciples in contrast to their Lord. That Jesus Christ is going one way, the disciples seem to be going another way, and Christ is trying to get them turned around, saying, follow me. I'm going a different direction than you are. I'm the one who is setting the pace here. And this is true for us as well. That we've had 2,000 years to try to absorb what Jesus Christ was teaching the disciples. You stand in a tradition that godly men and women, churches have been studying and teaching and living and exemplifying the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ on suffering service for 2,000 years. But this was a revolutionary new concept for the disciples. So as we go to God's word this morning and we see the failure of the disciples, don't look at them as just foolish or childish or immature, but instead recognize that this is a revolutionary concept that we've had a lot of time to absorb and we're still struggling with. And we need this reminder about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ just as they did. And the reminder is this, we are called to service. And service is the opposite of personal ambition or promoting our party, our group, 
Individual promotion, group promotion, is the opposite of what it means to be a Christian. The Twelve have a lot to learn about this, and 2,000 years later, we still have a lot to learn about this as well. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into this relatively long section, verses 30 through 50, a lot of great teaching on discipleship. Lord, we come to you now at the beginning of the sermon recognizing that you are wise, that you are good, and that we are not. We are foolish, and we still have the flesh within us that is selfishly ambitious, and it seeks to promote our group at the expense of others. Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn from what Jesus Christ said to his disciples and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us here today. For our good and for your glory. Amen. So we begin in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, with the second of Jesus' warnings, his prediction to the disciples that he is going to suffer and die. They have just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. That's what the first eight chapters were designed to do, was to lead us to the conclusion that this powerful person was no ordinary person, but that he is the promised one, the Savior of the world, God's King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, now that the disciples have realized this, the few that have recognized who Jesus is, they need to recognize that the pathway of the Messiah to glory must go through the suffering of the cross and the resurrection. So Jesus tells them this a second time. He's probably been telling them this a lot, but the second time it's recorded for us as this literary repetition is there to drive home the significance of this great turning point in the teaching ministry of Jesus. I'll read it for us. You follow along in your Bibles, starting in Mark 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Here Jesus makes it very clear, just as he did back in chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, that he's going to be killed, and that he's going to rise again on the third day. Now, back in chapter 8, Peter was clear enough on the fact that Jesus was going to die, that he took him aside to rebuke him. And The fact of the resurrection seems to be what they're really having a hard time understanding. Or maybe the disciples have gotten to the point where they've said, well, you know, he's saying that he's going to die, but he can't literally mean that. It's got to be something else, even though it seems so plain that that's what he's saying. Because here we're told that he's repeating this, and they're not understanding what he is saying. And not only are they not understanding, but they're afraid to ask him about it. Now, They are afraid to ask him about it, probably for a few reasons. One, Peter was strongly rebuked when he tried to tell Jesus, this is not going to happen to you. And so having seen how Peter was put down, they're like, I'm not going to say anything. And then possibly also, they already have a sense that they don't really want to know the answer. Sometimes you're afraid to ask someone something because you know, you suspect, you're not going to like what they're going to say. And so you just leave it. And I think that's probably part of what's going on here as well. But we're going to move quickly on. There's a lot more you could be said about this section. But since I want to cover a large section this morning, let's go on to verses 33 to 37. And while the disciples are afraid to ask Jesus what he's talking about, 
Jesus is not afraid to ask his disciples what they've been talking about. Now I'll show you what I mean by that as we read the text. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. All right, so this is a great section. There's so much for us to absorb here. Jesus asks them a question. What were you discussing on the way? And they're not discussing what Jesus has been trying to teach them. What are we going to do when Jesus dies and what's going to happen after his resurrection? That's what they should be discussing. Jesus is going this way towards suffering. They're going the opposite way. They're talking about who's the greatest. And they're still you know, reinforcing their belief and, and having this comfort in their heart that they're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's King of Kings. And they're the first ones to recognize it and get on board. And when a train is going up and you're the first one to get on board, that's a good position to be in. And so they're looking around and wondering, which one of us is going to be the greatest in Christ's coming kingdom? Who's going to be at his right hand? Who's going to be at his left hand? That's what they were discussing amongst one another. Peter, James, and John had just come down from the mountaintop with Jesus, and, and they're thinking, you know, we were the three that got to be there for the transfiguration and see the glory. It's probably one of us three that's going to be greatest in Christ's kingdom. And the other disciples might be somewhat jealous and saying, no, I mean, you guys are great, but, but you got problems, and really I think, you know, it's me that's going to be promoted in the kingdom, and here's my case and my reasons for my promotion. So that's what they were talking about on the way probably when Jesus was walking by himself, spending some time talking to God. This was the conversation they fell into. And they didn't really feel too proud about that conversation. They kind of had a sense in their heart that this is not what Jesus wants them to be talking about. And so when he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Just nothing. <laughs> nothing important. Nothing of note. And so Jesus, he knows. Obviously, that's why he asked the question. And you have to ask yourself, why does God ask questions to which he already knows the answer? And perhaps a better question is, why do we try to hide things from the one who knows everything? Now, as I said, we've had 2,000 years to try to implement this radical teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ lays out for his disciples here, and we're still struggling with it. In the ancient world, in Judaism... Religion was used for personal advancement in society. Their whole society was built on religion, and the way that you got ahead in their society was by being extremely religious. Now, you might think, well, that's you know, then, this is now, we live in a secular time. Well, secularism functions as a religion, and people will virtue signal now to try to gain clout and to try to promote themselves. If a, an actor or an actress starts to become less popular, not getting the phone calls, they might put out some virtue signal and hope that that's going to get the attention of somebody in Hollywood that's going to give them a call. And so people are still using religion, even if it's a secular, atheistic religion, in order to try to promote themselves, in order to get ahead in life. This is the way of the world. This is the way things work. That's the way it was then. 
And Jesus says, it's different among true Christians. Now, you still find a lot of Christians that will use Christianity as a way to get ahead. You come to church and you're looking for who you can promote your business to and who you can sell something to and who you can make friends with and and you're trying to climb social circles and raise your standing and say, well, look, everyone sees I'm a good person. I'm in church. A lot of people still treat religion that way, but that's not what Christianity is. Jesus says the essence of Christianity is just the opposite of that kind of mindset. This is a revolution. It's called the upside-down kingdom. It's a repeated theme throughout the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are repeatedly emphasizing this amazing truth. He sits down. This was the position that a teacher would take in their culture in order to have a formal time of teaching. I'm standing at a pulpit, but back then they would sit down. And in the house, he calls the twelve. He says, it's time to get a lesson. And he says this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be great in God's kingdom? There's nothing wrong with that desire. There's nothing wrong with that ambition. Jesus does not rebuke the desire to be great. But he says it's a totally opposite way of getting to greatness than what you have been taught and what you have seen and what has been exemplified. The way to be great is to make yourself the lowest and the servant. That is the pathway to greatness. He uses the example of the child. And I want you to recognize that this is different from his other illustration. There are places in the Gospels where Jesus will say that you have to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom. And there he's focusing on some of the character qualities of the child that are what is the essence of repentance and faith. But that's not what he's talking about here. Don't confuse this illustration with a different illustration. They both involve children. But what is he doing here? Notice what he says. He takes the child and he holds him in his arms in front of them all. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, reception is a welcome. It's how you greet someone. And the more important someone is, the more you're supposed to focus on the reception. If the president of the United States if he came to a church service, he might get a bigger reception at the church than just an ordinary citizen coming in. The neighbor kid comes over to my house, and if I'm at my desk, I might not pay much attention, and I'll let other people greet him, and and I'll just focus on my work. But if the governor comes over, or my boss comes over, I get up out of the desk, and I go to the door and greet him, And so the way that you greet someone in society, then as now, depends upon how important they are in society, what rank they have attained in society. Now, children have not attained any rank in society. They're at the bottom of the social climbing scale, and what we do is we teach them and train them how to climb up the social ladder, how to get a position of honor, how to get wealth so that they can be independent. Money and power are not bad things, but it's not what being a Christian is about. When we receive a child, when we give honor to the child, when we welcome the child and and treat the child as if we were greeting Jesus Christ himself, then we show what it means to be a Christian. Because the child cannot promote you. The child cannot help you get rich. The child is not going to make you more respectable. 
the time that you spend with children is not something that is going to help you climb the social ladder. And Jesus says, that's what it's about. I've said before, I'll say it publicly now, that I think it would be a good policy for a church, if they were looking for a pastor or if they're going through an eldership candidacy, is to take the candidate and see how he does when you put him with children. Does he think that he's too important to teach children Sunday school? Does he think that he's too important to talk to a child on Sunday morning? I've got to go talk to the important people. You kids, you're, you're not important. I've got elders to talk to. I've got deacons to talk to. I've I got all this stuff. And I'm at the top of this pyramid. And you guys are at the bottom of the pyramid. And you deal with the lower people. I deal with the upper people. A man like that is not fit to be a Christian minister. He's not fit to be a Christian leader. That's what Jesus Christ is saying here. That if you're concerned about your promotion, if you're concerned about your status, and everything that you do is designed to keep yourself moving up in the social strata, then you are not a Christ follower. And you should not be a leader in the church. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Religious hypocrites are those who do all their religious deeds to be noticed by men. And so we're so subtle, we're so fleshly, we're so sneaky that, that we can even use this to our advantage. And so I show up next Sunday and I'm talking to all the kids because I want you all to think that I'm super spiritual. And this is going to raise my sight and, and make me you know, more respected in the church because look, Timothy cares about kids. He's such a great guy. You see how we have this thing in our flesh and it's not about pleasing you. It's not about impressing you. It's not about doing my deeds to be noticed by you, but it's about loving and honoring people who are created in the image of God. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. Here in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking about his second coming, and he's talking about how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the meantime, while we're waiting for the kingdom and the glory. The kingdom and the glory are coming, but in the meantime, we are here to be least of all and to be servants of all out of our love for one another. Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through 46. It wasn't too long ago we were preaching on this, but I want to read it once again to remind you starting there in verse 35. Jesus said, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The Christian who's at the bottom of the social standing, the new Christian, the Christian who's in prison, the Christian who hasn't had a chance to build a reputation and honor, who doesn't know anybody in the church, the honor that you show to that person you show it as to Christ. When you receive the least among Christ's disciples, you are receiving Christ. And you're not just receiving Christ, but you are receiving God. 
Do you think that the deacons in this church are less glorious in God's eyes than the elders because the elders have a position of more authority? Think again. An elder who is self-seeking is far less glorious in the eyes of God than a deacon who truly serves the brethren. Think that a pastor who preaches to thousands of people in a city church is more important than the prison minister and chaplain? When Dan goes to the prison and he ministers to those few men, as to Christ, that is true greatness. That's why the scripture says we should outdo one another in showing honor. I'm not seeking honor for me, when I go to the pastor's meeting and all the, the pastors from the churches around are there, I'm not thinking, you know, I've got to say things right so that people recognize that, that I'm very wise. You know, I've got to be careful that I say things so that it looks like I'm very learned and, and very godly and, and very successful. No. If I'm going to a pastor's meeting with that mindset, I don't deserve to be there. But I go thinking, how am I going to build up others? How am I going to encourage them? How am I going to honor them? What am I going to say that's going to make them look good instead of what am I going to say that's going to make me look good? If I'm thinking what is going to make me look good, I'm not a Christian. But if I'm thinking what am I going to say that's going to honor them, then I have understood who Jesus Christ is and I'm walking in his ways. Very important. So hard. Like I said, we have so much in us that can twist and make it look like we're serving others when really we're just serving ourselves. And God knows the heart. And so that's why we pray, God, please search me and know me. If there's any way in me that's not right, root it out so that I can be pleasing in your sight and not be promoting myself in pride. Well, look also at verses 38 through 41. Not only did the disciples fail in seeking their own personal honor, they also fail because they have a factional spirit. They have a clique. They think they are the gatekeepers for the movement of Jesus. And here, John is picking up on what Jesus is saying, and he's kind of sensing that he did something wrong. And so I admire John bringing this up. There in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So John is recalling a time where he was with some of the other disciples, Jesus wasn't there, and they saw someone driving out spirits by using the name of Jesus, but he wasn't a part of their group. And they said, you can't do that. You can't use the name of Jesus if you're not a part of our group. Now, before you're too hard on the disciples here, let's try to steel man their position. Why did they think they should hinder this guy from using the name of Jesus to do these mighty works? Well, If you are a part of a new movement that has opposition, it's in your best interest to try to be careful about what gets out that's associated with your group. If someone goes out using the name of Jesus, well, we don't know this guy. We don't know what he's going to say. We don't know if he's going to represent Jesus well. And we've already got a lot of heat coming at us as it is. We don't need someone else, you know, a loose cannon out there causing problems for us. 
And so look at it from their perspective. They're just trying to keep control in a situation that's very volatile and very dangerous. And they're trying to protect the name of Jesus and say, we want to make sure that people who hear that Jesus has come and that his power is here, that that they're getting the right message, the truth about Jesus. However, they're being overprotective and a little too controlling in this case. And Jesus makes that clear. And he tells them, no, you did the wrong thing, which you're kind of sensing in light of what I'm teaching you here, that you should not stop, you should not hinder someone who is doing a mighty work in the name of Jesus, even if they're not a part of your group. And Jesus gives reasons. The reasons are introduced by that key word for. So the command is do not stop him. And then the reason number one, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. If you're worried about protecting this movement, well, you're overprotecting if you're trying to protect it from someone who's doing a mighty work in my name. If someone's doing a mighty work in my name, you don't have to worry so much that they're going to go out and speak evil, that they're going to cause trouble for us and, and misrepresent us. Now, if the guy had a bad heart and was misusing the name of Jesus, then God wouldn't have given him the power to cast out the demon. The fact that he was doing the mighty work, that God was honoring his faith in Jesus, because it's not magic, it's not just going out and saying, in Jesus' name, that does any miracle, but it's faith in the name of Jesus. And God rewarding that faith shows that this is someone who is for us. This is not someone who is against us. So someone who does a miracle, they're not going to quickly go out and cause trouble for us. Don't be overprotective. And then secondly, Jesus drives home what I just said, for... There in verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. That's a good verse to memorize. You look out in the world and you see all kinds of of Christians. There's some who claim to be Christian who are against Christ. You know that because of their actions, because of their, their doctrines, They have doctrine against Christ. They have actions against his teaching. They're evident by their fruit that they're against Christ even though they claim the name. But there's others out there who you can look at their life and look at their teaching and say, well, I might not agree with everything that this person is saying and doing, but they are for Christ. And I can tell from their actions and from their doctrine. And when you see someone out there who is not a part of your group, you don't have any control over them, you don't have any ability to tell them what to say and what not to say, the Bible wants you to have an inclusive spirit in that case. This is a key passage for our statement on cooperation. Our church has a statement on cooperation and separation, and it guides us into knowing how are we supposed to interact with other churches? How are we supposed to interact with other ministries? How are we supposed to interact with other groups of Christians? And we want to have an inclusive spirit that is represented here in Mark chapter 9, verse 40. The one who is not against us is for us. That's a guiding principle about looking at other Christians that are not a part of our group. If they're not against us, they are for us, and we're for them. Now, the statement on cooperation also has a statement on separation, which teaches us how to recognize when someone is truly against us, when someone is against Christ, and and there are those false workers in the world that the Bible talks about constantly. So when I say being inclusive, I don't mean every person who claims to be a Christian is for us. What I mean is is that every Christian who is following this is for us, whether they're a part of our group 
or not. You see, it's not about our group, is it? It's not about our church. We're not the gatekeepers. Jesus is the door, not me. I don't decide who's in and who's out. Jesus decides who's in and who's out. And I just recognize who's in and who's out according to whether or not they're going in and out the door of Jesus. He's the gatekeeper. We are not gatekeepers. It's important to keep that in mind as, as churches grow and as you have denominations. And denominationalism is not in the Bible. There's no gatekeepers. There's no authority out there that's deciding, well, these guys are in and these guys are not in. There's one authority, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that is dispersed among all of his followers. Christ is the door of the sheep. Now, there's a great passage about this that I want you to see in the Old Testament. I want you to go with me to Numbers chapter 11. It's really good of God to give us instruction like this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that these things are repeated to drive home the point, the key to learning is repetition, and so God repeats these things in different places in the Bible so that we can learn what we need to know, the timeless truths of Scripture. So back in Numbers chapter 11, we'll pick up the story there in verse 24. This is a chapter where elders are appointed to help Moses because Moses is one guy. He can't lead two million people without some help. And so he gets some leaders of the people, and what God does there in verse 24, Moses went out, told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent of meeting. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue prophesying. It's just a, a one-time event that showed that God was ordaining these elders to serve the people of Israel. But, verse 26, Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. The Spirit stayed on these two. And they were among those who had been registered with the 70, but they had not gone out to the tent and so they prophesied in the camp. Okay? So these guys were not there with the others. They were in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, he's like, uh-oh. This is outside of our control. This is outside of what's going on here with us. And we need to put a stop to this. We need to be the gatekeepers. Joshua, the son of Nun, who was the assistant of Moses from his youth, Ah, interesting that the Bible puts that detail in there, right? Why is Joshua so concerned about this? Well, because he's been the assistant of Moses from his youth. His promotion, his rank, is tied to Moses' rank. So any threat to Moses' position is actually a threat to Joshua's position because he's the successor, right? So you see that Joshua is not without some selfishness in what he says here. So Joshua, he says, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. If there's a better Bible teacher who comes along next week and joins our church, and you guys decide, Timothy, we really appreciate your service, but this guy's better, he's going to be the new preacher. Good. 
It'd be good for you to have a better preacher than me. It's not about us. It's about God's glory. It's about the growth of God's word. And until we learn that, we haven't learned the first principle of following Jesus. So easy to start to tie God's interest to our interests and say, well, really, I'm concerned about God. And it wouldn't be good for you to have another preacher here because he wouldn't be as faithful as me. And I just love you so much I couldn't let that happen. Jesus sets us the example. Well, we've got to keep moving. Verses 42 through 50. Let's read back in Mark chapter 9, back in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If you're not at peace with one another, what's the reason for it? You don't have to search high and low to figure it out. It's pretty obvious. Where do wars come from? Where does strife come from? If the family of God is not at peace, if your family at home is not at peace, What's the reason for it? It's your desires. It's your ambition. Wherever pride and selfish ambition are, there is disorder in every evil thing. Why is there so much disorder in every evil thing in the world? It's because everyone is seeking their personal promotion. Everyone is seeking to climb up the ladder. Everyone's trying to protect their place. Everyone's trying to get first. That's where all the disorder comes from. Years ago, I was at the wedding ceremony for one of your children, and the preacher there said, you've got to race to the bottom. Husbands, wives, if you want to know what a good marriage looks like, learn how to serve the other person. Race to the bottom. But if you're fighting for your rights and she's fighting for her rights, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have a lot of fighting. But if you're fighting for her rights and she's fighting for your rights, you know what you're going to have? Peace. You become a servant of others. How can a man be happy if he has to serve someone else? How can a man be happy if he's trying to serve himself? It's your own evil desires. It's your own pride. It's your own ambition. Speaking to myself, it's my pride, it's my ambition that causes problems. It's not their fault. It's here. It's out of the heart. It takes two people to fight. If you become a servant, there won't be any fight. You say, well, if I serve others, then who's going to take care of me? You've heard me say this before. God will take care of you. He might wait until the resurrection to take care of you, but he will take care of you. He'll test you. He'll see. Do you trust me to take care of you when you're suffering, when no one's caring for you, you're not getting your way, you're serving others? Jesus Christ, who was taking care of him? 
The Jews were taking care of him. Judas was taking care of him. Pilate was taking care of him. You have to go through that. That's what God calls you to. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of suffering. It's the way of service. It's the only way to be happy. There's no other way. Jesus here tells us about the unquenchable fire and the worm that doesn't die. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah. Back in Isaiah 66, verse 24, it's the last verse in Isaiah's great prophecy. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. The ones who worked their way to the top. The ones who successfully promoted themselves and their group and used their group and their leverage and and got the power and the respect and the money. Dead bodies. We'll go out and look at those dead bodies where their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. How can a man be happy if he's going to serve himself and his own desires? How can a man be happy if personal ambition rules his life? This is his end. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And so what is it? It's not your physical eye, it's not your physical hand, it's not your physical foot that Jesus is asking you to cut off and no Jew would have ever understood this to be taken literally. The Jews understood that maiming yourself was against God's law. The Jews understood that sin did not reside in the physical world. That was a Platonist thought. The Jews would never have been tempted to take this literally. But what did Jesus mean when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out? Well, there's nothing more precious to you than your eye and your hand and your foot, except your life. There's nothing more precious to you than your eye and your hands and your feet except your life. That's the point. It's better to enter life with one eye and one hand and one foot than to go into the eternal fire. And so, the idol of your heart, what is most important to you? Your place in society, your comfort, your respect, your honor. You want to get a guy mad, you disrespect him. That will get a guy mad because the idol of the heart is honor and respect. And God says you tear it out. You rip it out of your heart. Rip it out of your life. This is called mortification. Mortification is when you put to death that which is sinful in you. The source of sin is your heart. And to rip out your love of honor your love of pride, your love of comfort, the place that you have attained, you've worked your whole life to get to where you are, showing up at work, putting in your time, so that you can have what you have. Why did you spend all those years in school? Why did you work so hard to get your business going? Why do you do it? It's to have the money and the honor and the comfort, the place in society, the respect of other people. And God says, If that's what's going to keep you from following Christ, get rid of it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Christ is warning his disciples about the danger of going to hell. This is the twelve he's talking to. And one of them is a devil. And Judas will not mortify his sin. 
He will not pluck out his precious eye or cut off his precious hand in order to follow Jesus Christ. And Judas, the son of perdition, who heard these words of Jesus Christ, is in the fire that is unquenchable. And his flesh is being eaten by worms that will never die. Eternal conscious punishment is not a popular doctrine, but it is the clear teaching of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 is probably the clearest verse. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. I think R is a better translation. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil, the beast, the false prophet... They are the foremost examples of eternal conscious punishment. But all who go into the lake of fire experience eternal conscious torment. There's no rest at night. There's never a second of reprieve. It never gets easier. It never gets better. And after a thousand eons, you might wonder, is there an end? at the end of the next thousand years, and you'll know that there is not. Jesus loves you. That's why he warns you. He speaks more about fires and hell than any other prophet because he loves you more than any other prophet. And God saved this for Christ to teach you, to, to warn you that if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but tear out whatever is in you that would keep you from following Christ and being like this. This is the call to discipleship. This is the call of the gospel. And if you will not obey Christ's call, you'll be lost. It would be very foolish to refuse to have your hand amputated when it was full of gangrene because you loved your hand so much and then you lost your life because you refused the amputation. And so it's very foolish to love your sin and hold on to it. It will cost you your life. Now, in the last five minutes that we have, I want to explain the last couple of verses because they are difficult to understand in fact, there might be no verse in the Bible that has given Bible teachers more difficulty than verse 49 because there's no parallel to it. Nowhere else is this word language used in this way where it says everyone will be salted with fire. And so we're left to try to figure it out from the context as well as other scriptures that relate to it. And, and there's, there's lots of different explanations. But I'm not going to go into all the explanations. I just want to tell you, as I sought the Lord this week and I read what everyone had written and I listened to what preachers had said and Stephen Lawson had a very helpful sermon on it, I asked God for wisdom, for insight to be able to explain this to you and I hope that this will be helpful. Everyone will be salted with fire. In the Old Testament sacrifices, as it says in Ezekiel, the sacrifices were presented with salt. You shall present these sacrifices before the Lord and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. So what Jesus is saying here 
in light of the way that salt is used and fire is used in conjunction with the temple operatum, is that every person is going to be put on the heavenly altar before God, and that we are going to be salted in fire. That what was happening when the Old Testament sacrifices were brought to God is that the animal was being offered up to God as a sacrifice. And here's the truth. Every one of you is going to be put on the altar of God in heaven and you are going to be salted in fire. The totality of your being, who you are, who you've become, the choices that you've made, the things that you've said, the things that you've done, it's going on the heavenly altar. And for those who have not heard the call of Jesus, who have not been born again, who have not become like little children, who have not walked the way of the cross, who have not attained holiness, there's the eternal fire that Jesus has just been talking about. Everyone will be salted with fire. But that includes us, who are believers. For those who have attained holiness, for those who have heard the call, for those who have walked with Christ, for those who have become like little children, you will also stand before the throne of God, you will be placed on the altar, and what is worthless in your life will be burned up. You can read about this experience in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I encourage you to jot down 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 17. I think this is a key passage for understanding what Jesus means when he says everyone will be salted with fire. Believers will be salted with fire. and Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 17. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Are you ready to be offered up on the altar in God's presence? What in your life is going to be burned up and you're going to suffer loss? Is it your entire soul being worthless, being lost in sin that is going to be burned up for ages in the lake of fire? Or is it the remaining works of fleshliness that is going to be burned up and you will be saved, but only as through fire? And Jesus, having spoken about those who were going into the fires of hell before this verse, after it, he talks about those who are believers, who are followers of Christ. In verse 50, salt is good. Salt represents that which is incorruptible. Salt was essential in the ancient world because it was what they had to preserve food from the decay, from the putrefaction that settles in with meat. Salt was essential because it was that which was incorruptible and conveyed incorruptibility to that to which it touched. And so salt represents holiness. That's why the sacrifices were given with salt because the salt would represent the meat on the altar not becoming corrupted with putrefaction. And so salt is good. Holiness is good. It's good that God is holy. It's good that God is a righteous fire. It's good. But if you, the salt of the earth, lose your saltiness, what will you use to make it salty again? You can't season the seasoning. If the followers of Christ are not holy, if the followers of Christ are selfishly ambitious, if the followers of Christ pretend to follow Christ but really serve themselves and their group, 
then where in the world is there any holiness? Where in the world is there any love? Where in the world is there any truth and unity if not in the salt? There's got to be salt in the salt or else this world is doomed and completely lost. You can't salt salt. Salt has to be salt in itself. And that's why he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Are you at peace with one another? Are you at peace in your household? Are you at peace in this church? If not, what are we doing? We have no purpose if we're not at peace with one another.